Welcome to The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. I told you a few months ago that there are some very exciting reasons why I've been especially busy lately. Well, one such reason is that I'm coming out with Chess Queens. It's a totally updated and revised version of my previous book on women in chess. Right now, orders are my love language. With that in mind, let's get into this episode's special guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Grid. I'm Jennifer Shahadi, and today I am super excited to bring you a very special guest to The Grid, Tommy Angelo. I know everyone's going to be quite excited about this one. He's a renowned poker coach and author. He's also a professional player. His first books, Elements of Poker, was way ahead of its time in addressing issues like tilt, like quitting, when to quit. And it has been hailed by some of the best players in the world, including... Phil Galfond. Meanwhile, Painless Poker, which we'll be talking about today, as that's where his grid hand comes from, is a melange of nonfiction and fiction unraveling the many types of poker pain. Today, that hand that he brings us, Ace-3 suited, will give us a little insight into one type of very, very severe poker pain. Tommy, thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> and thank you, Jennifer, for having me on. I've really been looking forward to this. Indeed, yes. And you know, I being a writer myself, love the way that you, in painless poker, kind of combine all of these different formats, you know, your own experience, and then also fiction. And I know the hand that you bring today comes from way back. Right. Yeah. So we've done a lot of throwback hands in the grid, but a lot of times they're from like 2003 when, you know, some of my guests like first got into poker. But no, this one is from 1995. Right. Tell us a little bit about like what point in your poker career you were in 1995. I didn't actually start grinding full time till I was about 30. OK, so at this point I was around 35 or 37 and I'd been grinding, you know, six years full time. It was low stakes in home games, smoky basement home games in Columbus, Ohio. And so I, I was even married, had a house in the suburbs, and you know my wife didn't make a ton of money. And I was you know the breadwinner, main breadwinner, grinding low stakes. So then I you know I, I was going to Vegas on and off and playing twenty forty. This is back when everybody was playing limit hold'em and other versions of limit poker. I had that much experience at pot limit. And, and around 1995, I started traveling to Gary, Indiana, Davenport, Iowa, and St. Louis, Missouri to play on the river boats. So this hand is from 1995 on the Admiral next to the arch in St. Louis. They had a pot limit Hold'em and Omaha game 
on Wednesdays and Fridays, five, five blinds. And they had 2040 limit hold them on Thursday. So I would go down there for a three day junket, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So the first time I went down there, I won big. Next week I went down one big again. And the third, by big, I mean like three grand, okay? The third week I went down there, I had 10 grand on me, which was effectively my whole bankroll at that time, right? And that's, I'd, I'd gone from like 3,000 to 6,000 to 10,000 the previous week. So I was feeling super confident to go down there and crush these guys again. So I go down there and I'm playing, I lose and I'm buying in like a thousand or two at a time and I get all the way down to my last thousand, okay? And then the game was like all straddles. The game was super loose. So it was five, five, 10, pot limit. It was actually a half round of Omaha, half round of Hold'em, but this is a Hold'em hand. So I build it all the way back up to I had 10,000 on the table again, you know, effectively a thousand big blinds or 500 at the, at the straddle stakes. And I was just like crazy, the only, I mean, crazy excited. The only other guy at the table that had me covered was this guy named Quinn, who was the best player in the player pool by far. And I was a great fan of his. I admired him and I was learning things from him every time. So that's one of the key characters. And there's only three characters in his hand. He's really the main one. The other character in the hand is a guy named Elvis. That was his actual name. He's a guy who buy in 300 at a time and was very splashy and loose. Now, one other thing to set the scene is, this was on a weekday, and on the weekdays back then, they closed the boat at 4 a.m. The only poker room I've ever been in where all of a sudden they just boot you out, right? And, and that changes the dynamic of the game tremendously coming into the last half hour because people get really stuck and steaming and desperate, right? So here I am, I grinded all the way back to where I was actually up a thousand. No way should I still be playing in this game when the only other guy that has me covered is Quinn, the best player ever. Nowadays, I would be, have been gone long ago, but back then I was really, really stupid. And I did everything wrong like all the time. So, and I was just an emotionally high, strong basket case in general. I got ace three diamonds, Elvis straddles. You know, he's like, come and get it. In other words, he's saying, Here's my 300. I'm ready to splash it in here. Let's go before the time runs out, right? So I open for 40 with ace three, folds all the way around to the big blind, and Quinn calls in the big blind. Now, that right there was like, oh, my God, scared me, right? It's like, what the hell is he doing in there late in the game? And, of course, uh, Elvis calls. So there's 120 in the pot. Flop comes queen, four, deuce with two diamonds. I have ace three of diamonds. So I flop straight draw, flush draw, and a straight flush draw. They both check. I'm in last position. They both check, and I check. It's kind of a you know sneaky little play I do sometimes. I don't always bet out with these monster draws. And especially, I'm really aiming for El Elvis's final money, right? If he gets any kind of hand on the turn, he's going to give it to me. I mean, if I hit. So I check. Turn comes. You guessed it. Five of diamonds. So now I make the straight flush. I've Whoa. got ace three of diamonds. There's ace two, five of diamonds on the board. Quinn checks. Elvis bets 100 with a $100 chip. And I just smooth call. Because I, I figure he's going to either bluff the river or bet the river or whatever. I'm going to get his last 160 or whatever he's got left. This is where things go crazy. This is where, you know, if you read this story, the first chapter of Painless Poker is my story of greatest pain, which is this whole sequence of trips to, to St. Louis. And I'm about to lose my stack here. No surprise there. But it, that chapter is intended to be a, a, a one-off story. You have turned the, uh, the straight flush, the ace right. um, straight, the, the wheel straight flush. You've turned right. the wheel straight flush and are obviously feeling great. Spec to get heads up with Elvis. Right. And Quinn raises it up from the big line. Right. Elvis bets 100. I smooth call. And now Quinn makes it 400. Now, a key part of this whole 
pan and the whole situation is I went into the fog. That's what I call it. Like, and this is a problem a lot of people have, and I don't have it anymore, but I've done it a million times. It's like something goes wrong when we're in a big pot sometimes and we just don't think right. Right. It's just mm -hmm. crazy what happens. And this was long before I started meditating or doing anything that allowed me to control my mind. And so when he raised, I went into the fog, Elvis folded and I call. Okay. River comes, eight of diamonds. Now the board is deuce, four, five, eight of diamonds. So the six, seven of diamonds beats my hand. It makes a higher straight flush. But that didn't even register as a possibility in my mind. On the turn, the story in my head was, I have the unbeatable nuts. I, that wasn't the, a true story, but in my mind, there was no card that come on the river to beat me. I got a straight flush, right? So the eight of diamonds comes, he bets out a thousand, and I just make it 3,000, right? I mean, I've got the nuts in my mind. He makes, he shoves all in for 7,000 more, and I snap call, just snap call, like we do in the fog. We don't necessarily computate and think, oh, Maybe he hit whatever, right? So I snap call, and the way I tell the story in the book is, and I'm sure you've been through this before, right after I said I call, I knew I couldn't win this hand somehow. You know, I, there's no way against this great, great player that, that this sequence can be a winning sequence for me. It, it just doesn't even matter what the cards are almost, right? So of course, right after it happened, I see the eight, and he shows the straight flush. I go completely bust, and even telling the story is, being with you is a happy experience, but it still brings me great pain to relive this. You know, it's just like, oh my God. So then the, the next three pages, the final three pages of the story is me ranting on the way home. Just ranting, insane, completely insane. Going through every kind of pain there is that I was experiencing. And the biggest one, the one that's always gotten me more than bad luck, although that's huge, is bad play. I was telling myself, okay, I've got the ace of diamonds, which is the best he could have is like the king high flush, right? Which is like the third or fourth nuts, depending on how you want to think about this. You could think like ace three is the nuts, seven, six of diamonds, is, I mean the second nuts, seven, six is the nuts, king high flush is the third nuts, right? Would he, after, after on the river, he bets a thousand, I raise three thousand. The only hand I can beat is a king high flush. That's it. Is there any world where this player would raise me at that moment with a king high flush. No, it's the most obvious fold in the world, but it's hard to fold a straight flush, especially when you're in the fog. I love this. So many things to pin here. That's basically the hand. So go ahead. A great point about also straight flushes. When you make them, try not to make the, the wheel flush because then your opponent can't, <laughs> can't even have the ace high flush, which makes it so hard to get value. So that, that's a good WSLP trip to Make, make your straight flushes, um, not, the, not the wheel ones. No, seriously, I, I love what you say about the fog because I think a lot of people can relate to that. Like, for instance, being in a big three or four bet pot heads up in an important tournament. And now I remember once somebody... Um, who was helping me with poker at the time told me like, you know, Jen, why would you be stressed in three bet pots? The ranges are so much narrower. It should be easier to play them. <laughs> and, uh -huh. and I thought that was really insightful. Like, yes, technically easier, but emotionally more difficult. Now, what's the difference between being in the fog and being in the zone? Are they opposites or are they similar, but one's driven by um, emotion and one isn't? I think of the fog as a... Uh like a temporary affliction that happens in a specific moment in a hand, 
because of the excitement, because of the, the energy or confusion or whatever. So, you know, the, the fog goes away as soon as the hand's over. It's just a very temporary thing. Whereas being in the zone is something you hope to maintain 100% of the time. So, yeah, they're opposite in that one is very, very favorable and profitable and one is very bad and not profitable. But the fog is just like, a, you know, it's a form of temporary insanity where you're just not in control of your normal cognitive process. And a lot of time it involves like stress and yeah. you know, oh, yeah, fear. Totally. But in yes, this case, fear, it's actually fear. the opposite. You had no fear. And were, were, do you, when you remember that, because you said that you were brought back to that moment after the fog, when you realized you lost a hand, did you feel euphoria? Was it a euphoric fog because you thought you had the unbeatable nuts? Oh, yeah. At the moment, I made it 3,000. That's what makes this game so brutal, right? I mean, let's say you're playing a hand where a guy accidentally slow rolls through. You know, he's like, oh, that's good or whatever. And at that point, it's a huge pot. And you, you know, 5,000 in there. You think you've won that pot. And in a split second, he turns his hand over and all of a sudden you've lost it, right? That's the most painful thing. So yeah, I was completely euphoric at the moment I bet 3,000. The fog itself truly kicks in at that moment he makes it 7,000. That's the moment where thinking needs to happen and it, and it couldn't. I just snap call, right? Just snap call. It was crazy. Yeah, in, in terms of dispelling the fog, that goes to coaching mode, but basically any form of mindfulness, any form of intentional awareness that you can do between hands, witnessing your own body, your sensations, your posture, your breathing, the sounds, anything that brings you into the moment and out of the nonstop churning mind. If you do that over and over and over and train yourself to do that, that's a way of resetting, resetting, resetting. And I believe this is the best way to keep the fog at bay. You can't just think about it at home and think, huh, you know, I think I should play better when somebody reshoves on me on the river. You can think that, but how do you do it in practice? It's hard. The only way I know how to do it is to see it as a long range, slow process of fixing the moment when you lose track of your mind. And, and the best way to do that is to keep resetting all the time during the session. You know, so what I do is before every hand, I sit up very straight, very often cup my hands in my lap. So if I can remember to do that before every single hand, the fog has no chance. There's no room for it. Now, I also do a ton more than that during the hands. You know, I have a typical tightish V-pip, right? And so during the hands, my objective is to watch every bet of every hand and I'm only a cash game player. And this is even more important at tournaments because you have people coming and going, right? I watch every bed of every hand and I do mindful breathing and I'm aware of my posture. I've been meditating every morning for half an hour and doing a half an hour of stretchy bendy stuff without missing a day for 20 years. And about 17 years ago, I started taking this to the poker table. So I've had a tremendous amount of training at maintaining this high, high level of focus and awareness on every bed of every hand. But it took me years and years to get there. But I was largely motivated by my great quest, which is to reduce the unhappiness, continue reducing the pain, reducing the fear, and isolating every single possible stressor that can happen during the game. You know, being upset at a guy for what he said, being upset because they brought the wrong food, Every single tiny little annoyance, I have made it my mission to undo. 
my my objective now is to be an agent of peace and joy and love at the table. So I've gone way to the other end of the spectrum of like what I'm doing with my mind and body at the table now. When you say that you you send out love and peace and kindness meditation, I know that a big part of your career is of course your writing and your coaching. That is the bulk of it. Right. If poker was your primary source of income, do you still think that you could do that? Or would it, does it cut into your profits to send joy and love to people? Or, or not really? Is it just kind of separate? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It increases my profit hugely. Okay. It just so happens, and I was going to bring this up anyway, I'm playing again on a regular basis. I've, I've been doing a lot of production of books and articles and stuff for years. And I've played through all that 15 years in a row playing 2000 hours a year minimum. 15 consecutive years, that's a lot of poker. Then I started writing books and stuff and I got down to where some years I was playing maybe 200 hours a year, you know, 100 hours a year, which was enough to keep my head in the game. But now I've, I'm not making stuff right now and I've been playing three times a week down at Oaks. They have a game, it's a 2-5 game, but it's effectively 5-10 because it's a winner straddle. And so that's my sweet spot and stakes when I was grinding all the time. So now I'm playing and I've learned so much more through coaching and reading and GTO and all that. And so I'm bringing more peace, love and joy to the table than ever before. But it, it isn't like I'm sitting there saying this stuff. It's just how I feel inside. What it means is whenever I do have an interaction with anyone, whether it's a dealer or a player or whatever, there's no negativity. It's just non-existent. And so the, all that does is increase my profitability because I'm able to play my A-plus game on every single street of every hand. But in poker, we are dealing with a zero sum game uh, yeah. and there's only, you know, so many resources to go around at the table, right? Like if you're playing a sit and go, somebody wins all the chips. Let's just say that my objective was only to make as much money as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. And it's possible that doing my mom poker thing that I did for years, where I just don't talk to anybody ever. I mean, I used to play in Vegas during the last 12 years only, and I just wouldn't speak. And that was a style I developed, right? And it was very profitable too, because it was intimidating and it would like put people off. Let's just assume that that was, a, you know, 10% more profitable. I still wouldn't want to do it because ultimately the poker is, is just one tiny little piece of the bigger picture, which is enjoying life and being good to people. If you use that style, it can be hard to break out of it because you need to practice mm -hmm. like enjoying yourself and playing poker. So if like, yeah. I think if you associate as a habit poker with being super serious and never having fun, then you might just quit or not play as much and not get as much volume, which could be reduce your profitability anyway. Yeah. Good point. It's interesting what you say about the fog, because I feel, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but when I play online poker, I almost never get into a fog. I, it's like, it's hard because you're just like so focused. You've got like your tables and you're playing mm -hmm. and you're just like in the zone a lot, or at least I am. Yeah. What is it about live poker that makes the fog so much more common? Is it that there's all these different people that make, make a lot more anchors for anxiety? Is it that a lot of times there's more at stake or there's more humiliation at stake because you're in a real life setting? What do you think it is? Yeah. Well, it's some combination of all those and it's different for different people. One of the differences between online and live is that there's a little more pride on the line playing live when um, people are looking right at you. You know, there's different kinds of fear and shame, you know, fear of being humiliated or whatever. I really don't have an answer to your question about why is fog more prevalent live than online. One of the reasons is I don't play online. And when I did play online, I was way, way, way back. I was, I had versions of tilt that were so terrifying to me. I just had to quit. 
you know, it'd be interesting to take like some kind of survey of the, of the real world beaters and see if any of them still suffer from fog issues. Because it could be it's something that people just naturally grow out of over time. I'm a pretty emotional person. So I do still experience some fog, but the better your technical and default game is, the less it matters, right? And that's a concept that you've written about as well, about like elevating your C game, right? Right, right. Even if you're feeling emotional or tired or exhausted, if you've got your ranges down and you've been in these spots before and you remember like what did and didn't work, that's a great way of elevating. The meditative path is nothing about getting rid of emotions. And that's one of the great misconceptions. You know, people say to me, oh, you know, I don't want to start meditating and become an emotionless zombie. And I just tell them, look at me. I've been doing this 20 years. Do I look emotionless to you? No. No. The process is witnessing. So if you're sitting there and you're angry and frustrated, and now keep in mind, most of the clients I work with and people I talk to are not at your level. Okay. They're lower stakes players who, who are less advanced. Some of them might be grinders or about to be, but they're still suffering from major emotional stuff. That's why they hired me in the first place. So that's the people I'm used to talking to. And the act of witnessing the negative emotions as they're happening. Okay, so you lose a big pot on the on the river. And now you you know, you started doing a little bit of meditation in the morning. And so you've got some skill at like stopping your body, stopping your mind and going, okay, right now, I'm really, really, really pissed off at that drunk asshole who sucked out on me again. If you can just say that to yourself in your mind, that in itself creates a level of separation from the endless spinning, uncontrolled negative thoughts and gives you a chance to step outside just long enough to like, oh yeah, there's my busy brain again telling me some story of pain that's just made up. You know, and it takes a lot of time, right? People don't think of things like boredom as a form of pain, but it is, or impatience. So you're sitting there, the game's juicy as hell, 10-3 offsuit, 9-4 offsuit, fold, fold, fold. You open a hand and it goes three bet, four bet, and you have to fold. Then you fold 10 more hands. You start feeling, oh, woe is me, I'm card dead, blah, blah, blah. Okay, what if you had a magic pill that you could take where you just like suddenly you just like sit up, you're straight, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm card dead again. Well, no big deal. That's what my life is. I'm a professional. You know there's going to be card debt. It's no big deal. Quit whining, get grateful, think about the good things in your life, have a sip of coffee, eat a good meal, sit up, be proud, and play poker. So this all speaks to the fog too. It goes to all mental issues that could cost you money at the table. This is one of the processes that can help. I love the idea that boredom is a type of pain. You know, I never have any issues with feeling card dead because I always, I'm always getting aces. No, but uh, (laughs) seriously, I do sometimes feel that the reason it's frustrating, especially in a tournament where you can't reload um, to lose a big pot is because depending on your stack size, there's less fun things that you can do, right? Right. And also, you know, you you have friends, you reporters coming around to your table looking at your stack. And of course you want it to be big. It's like right. more exciting. So I, I think that that kind of feeling that life will be more exciting when you have fewer chips is a way to look at it because that could really mitigate the disappointment a little bit to just like observe yeah. like, hey, I'm kind of frustrated because even though I play the hand well, I'm right. not going to be able to do fun things anymore. Obviously, you have a lot of clients in your coaching business and they, they come to you with all sorts of different problems, all sorts of issues in poker with tilt and pain. 
What is the most common thing that people struggle with? <laughs> wow. Holy cow. There's just so many things. What's the most surprising thing that like comes up quite a lot that doesn't really, it doesn't come up with you. So you were kind of surprised yeah. that so many clients have it. Well, the most surprising thing, this, this is a different question, but the most surprising thing is when I'm talking to somebody that seems that they are beyond any kind of superstition, but they still have that. Like fairly advanced players will still do things like think, oh, well, nines are running hot right now or whatever, you know, or, or like they'll, they'll think that because they did something wrong at home, they're being unlucky as the, the gods are actually punishing them or whatever. It's always surprising to me when somebody brings some sort of supernatural-ish element in because typically when somebody is into their game well enough to actually hire a coach, you know, we assume that they've sort of moved beyond that kind of stuff. So that's kind of surprising. A lot of the people I've coached in the last three years or so have been people who are either just started grinding full time or are thinking about it or thinking about making the move. One of my videos I made, which is one of my favorite ones, it's called, But It's Not Gambling. And it's about trying to convince your friend, family, and lovers that you're not crazy by quitting mm. your job to play poker for a living. So that's a, that's a whole version of pain and stress that I've worked with people quite a bit on. Um, you mentioned quitting earlier. There are a lot of players that, you know, they come to me and they want to talk about technical stuff. And I talk strategy with a lot of them. But then I come, then I start asking more questions about what are your sessions like? And they're like, well, you know, I typically play like 10 or 12 hours once or twice on the weekend, let's say a semi-rec kind of guy. And I'll be like, digging deeper, I find out that their tilt comes up after six or seven hours. In other words, they need to drastically shorten the length of their sessions and it would immediately up their game. Now that's really easy to say, but the thing is poker and gambling and all this is highly addictive. And I talk to them directly about that. It's like when you get your, the needle in your arm, it's hard to just walk away. You know, that's one of my most quoted quotes is walking away is easy. The hard part is standing up. And that is literally what I coach clients on. I tell them you got to get your ass out of the chair more often. Even if all you do is stand up and walk around and do a squat and get back in. If you can train yourself to do that, then you have a chance to become a better quitter. Bad quitting is a, is a big area of low hanging fruit where a lot of people can improve. It's funny because both of those things that you mentioned, it's actually hilarious. Both, I'm actually the opposite of both of those things. When I graduated college, I, I wrote um, my first book and I was doing a, a lot of work around chess. And my brother was a professional player, very successful. His name is Greg Shahadi and went by curtains online. And I remember my mom and dad who are both really into games and, uh -huh. and you know, all in all of the card games, chess, board games, they, they were like, Jen why are you not playing poker like your brother? It's uh -huh. free money for smart people. <laughs> That's a good line. That was my mother. And it's just hilarious because of course, all my other friends who played poker, their parents were saying the exact opposite thing. That is pretty funny to be encouraged. <laughs> One of my early clients was like that, where it was a father who hired, this is back when I was coaching a lot of pros and I was charging 10,000 for the week-long intensive. It was like in the late aughts. And a father hired me for his son. Just like you're saying, it's exactly the opposite of the usual model. He couldn't wait to get his son out there playing poker. Back in the old days, you know, everybody was totally hooked and wanted to play as long as they possibly could. And when I started coaching, when, a, when I first had a client that said, yeah, I, I play online like three hours a day and I want to get it up to four. I'm like, what? 
This is the first person I'd ever met that like didn't have a quitting problem ever, right? <laughs> that was my brother as well, actually. So maybe it runs in the family. And also we're chess people. So we came into poker, not we, we had no interest in the gambling side of it. Right. So maybe that's the reason because we were like, oh, this is like a fun strategic game. But like looking at a monitor for like, this is my brother's philosophy was a mass multi-tabler. And, you know, it was just like yeah. hard of the eyes to do that for more than like three hours. So we just stopped at that yeah. point. But um, he did notice that some of his friends were making more money because they were able to add that fourth and fifth and sixth hour. Speaking of which, I love your concept of Sixth Street. Um, absolutely brilliant. Really, really helpful to me because I do feel that giving away things at that moment is so dangerous, but it's like underlooked sometimes. Yeah. Sixth Street being everything that happens after the action is closed. We're talking about the discussion and facial expressions and everything else. There's just enormous amounts of information available there because one little comment can open up a whole window of you know where they're coming from. But the equally important, though, is not giving up information on Sixth Street by us. Like, I mean, you're very popular and known. So what's that like when you're playing a tournament and it's at the end of a hand and somebody says, oh, did you, and, you know, you bet the river and they fold and they said, oh, did you did you have queens or whatever? You know, what do you do? Well, I always say I had it because I want to make. Oh, people that's a feel, good answer. Well, I want to make people feel good. So I almost right. never, never say, I mean, I almost never would show a bluff. And um, unless there was like a really specific reason, I guess it's tough for you, too, because you've got like the, the big personality and you also like to talk. So what do you say when people ask what you had? So I don't do that much talking at the table. And, and I'm incognito down there. I mean, I, at Oaks, I don't think anybody knows, like, you know, very few people know who I am. Oh, really? Okay. I'm just like some, uh, another old white guy. Yeah, it's great. That's one of the things I love about it. But generally speaking, you know, the way I define mum poker, there's mini-mum and maxi-mum. A maxi-mum is when you don't say anything at all. Mini-mum is when you just don't talk about poker hands, mm. right? So, like, I live in Oakland. You know, the Warriors in the playoffs, and people are talking about basketball, fine. You know, talk about movies, fine. But when it comes to talking or indicating any information about the actual hands that just transpired, zero, absolute zero. Oh, yeah, that's great. Except, except to basically like smile and nod and say like, yes, if somebody kind of like guesses your hand. If someone engages, right. I think that's an important, like for people who are trying to get to the next level in poker, it is important to realize that a single hand and what your opponent had, if it doesn't go to showdown is... Um, not important enough to like suck out too much energy from you. If you're, if somebody's like continually asking a, somebody at the table, like, what did you have that hand? What did you have that hand? And like, it's haunting them for hours. It's kind of like right. giving, the, giving away that they're like fixated gives away a lot more than they end up getting, I'd say. Oh, for sure. Well, and that's definitely a losing strategy to wear your emotions on your sleeve and just be letting everybody know your every thought. I love your book, Painless Poker and how like, creative and an approach you took to the book as, as a writer myself, combination of nonfiction and fiction. I, and what I really love about that is because poker itself is like a combination of nonfiction and fiction. There's like the hand that happens and then there's all the possible hands that you could have had. Yeah. Now I understand that painless poker was interesting process for you. And tell me about like the pain of writing and how that compares to the pain of poker. What I did with writing is I, I applied exactly the same process to writing as I did to poker, which is to analyze where does each little bit of tension and pain come from? So, for example, tilt or pain. You know, that's an anxiety that can exist for a writer. 
There's fear of failure or, you know, just ego attachment to the quality of your work and worrying are people going to like it. The pain of feeling like you're not productive enough mm-hmm. or, you know, stalling out when the project stalls out and days go by and you're like, oh, I need to be writing, but, you know, I don't have any mojo for it or whatever. What made it possible for me to become a painless writer, which I am right now, is the priority. I prioritized it above the writing itself. And so I had, you know, I was writing every day, hours and hours and hours every day. But all along, I was like, anytime I would feel tension in my body, I knew something wasn't quite right. And I would call myself and figure out, okay, what is the root, root cause of this? You know, the the errors and typos or whatever you would call it, it's like, and all my books are self-published, you know, so, and I have a main editor and other people. It took me a while to get there. And and because I was a full-time musician for 10 years, I was moved along this scale of, of, it's a form of artistic freedom where once you know you've done your best, then it's like, okay, if there was typos or whatever, I did all I could, right? I checked it eight times. I sent it around. My pain comes from when I haven't done my best. So the typos themselves, yeah, they're irritating. But then in themselves, they don't cause me pain. If I know I did everything I could to correct them and some of them leaked through, you know, I'm okay. You know, the pure artist just creates, continues creating and creating and creating. And you create so much that it allows you to not be attached to any of the individual things. Another aspect that's helped me with, the, with not having that pain is like, let's say you write a book and you, while you're working on it, you know that if the right person reads this, it's going to resonate with them. Mm-hmm. So let's say you knew in advance that a hundred of the right people were going to read this and every one of them was going to write back to you and say, wow, thank you for writing this, right? Is there really that big a difference between whether there's 10 of those, a hundred of those, or a hundred thousand? You know, at what point do we become less unhappy based on some random number? This is one of the pains I've worked through. So now if I put a video out and it gets 50 views and two people write to me and say, hey, I really enjoyed your video. I'm like, I feel exactly as fulfilled and my job is done as if it had been a million. It really doesn't matter to me because... All I did was the best I can. That's all I did. And I put it out there. And at least one person heard it. This is where I'm like a lot of artists. It's like once I put it out there, I'm done with it. I don't go back and read it. I don't go do anything because there's the next thing. You're always on to the next thing. Yeah, it's a very valuable perspective. One thing I really liked about your book as as an author was that you put the acknowledgments at the start and they were very creative. It wasn't like just like a list of people that you were thanking. Um, and, you know, being that meditation, um, the practice of gratitude, I felt that that was a, a real specific manifestation of that. How do you feel about the conversation around um, gratitude? And are there ways that like you would tweak it for, you know, your, your students in poker or in writing? Oh, absolutely. So gratitude, I'm very fortunate to be part of a wonderful giant Italian family. And the elders in our family have always been talking about gratitude and when I was younger, 18, 19, in my 20s, I hated it. When they, I would be like, what do you mean, be grateful? Everything's terrible. <laughs> you know, I don't have anything I want, blah, blah, blah. I can't be grateful, right? I just didn't understand. I was just young and stupid. But now I really understand it. 
And it's a muscle you can train. It's possible to be great, grateful for having warm water in your shower. Every bite of food, every, you know, I put up a tweet the other day that said, your flops are numbered, love them all. You know, this is one of the biggest things that's made me able to be stable at poker is I would remind myself, it's Tuesday afternoon and I'm playing poker. How bad can it be? So there's all different versions of gratitude. It takes a little effort and awareness to do it. But I believe that returning to gratitude as a pain reduction formula, as an unhappiness reduction, reduction skill is invaluable. It's one of the main, main ones. And I can tell you're grateful for coffee, which is something we have in common. <laughs> I love coffee so much. And it definitely really helps with my gratitude practice because in the morning, I just like feel really lucky to be able to be alive and be able to have that to wake up to. Exactly. And then do you find that like, for instance, this comes really naturally to me with something like coffee or like, you know, seeing my loved ones in the morning, but like gratitude doesn't always come naturally to me. So if I can kind of like bottle that feeling that I have in the morning and then apply it to other things. Right. So the idea of, of a mindfulness practice is you, you work on doing these types of things all day long. So let's find a frustrating moment. You're at the grocery store, long line, and you're running late. And, but you have to buy this wine because you're going to a party and it's a house gift or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Is that a frustrating time for you? Yeah, that could be frustrating, definitely. So this is when you call up the gratitude at that moment. That's when you do it. You put your hands on your shopping cart, you stand still, you stop moving, and you consciously think about what is good in your life. That's really smart. I'd say a lot of the time my frustrations are just like getting an annoying message or email, you know, just like something that you don't like feel like replying to, or that's just like uh, irritating, bad news, that kind of stuff, all these types of things. That's probably where I could use my gratitude practice the most. And another tool to use there is, it's a whole different topic, which is uh, compassion toward everyone, even assholes, right? So let's say somebody writes something to you and it's got some darts in it, little spears that are designed to annoy you, mm -hmm. right? You just recognize that we're all bozos on this bus. We all have exactly the same goals, which is to be less unhappy. And we all have all the same fears and anxieties. And if somebody's a little bit mean to you, it's because they're suffering. They're suffering, yeah. right? So if we're walking down the street and we see somebody fall off their bike, we go up to help them. Our immediate impulse is to go help them because they're hurting and we can see it. If somebody gets mad at you in a mean way, our normal reaction is our ego reacts and says, they're angry at me, I'm gonna be angry back. The compassionate reflex is they're angry at me, they're suffering, what can I do to ease their pain? It might mean not replying, it might mean right replying to the email with a little bit of lightness and kind-heartedness. But the, but the key act is realizing that when somebody's behaving badly, that that's an opportunity to practice compassion, not just more bad behavior. It's really amazing, you know, how I think that these ideas of like gratitude and kindness are so complex. You know, you think about poker and its complexity, but emotional complexity is, is even, even more. Oh, yeah. So that's why it requires kind of like attention and study, which I, I think is, is beautiful to see. And, you know, Tommy, it's been like such a privilege to have you on the show. You are so ahead of your time. I mean, you've been talking about things for so many years and such a deep level that now everybody realizes, well, not everybody, but so many people realize are extremely important to success, not only in poker, by the way, but 
these types of ideas of the mental game and tilts and quitting are actually now kind of infiltrating chess as well. So it's, it's great to see your success. And um, at TommyAngelo.com, people can actually read and watch all these videos you've been talking about in this podcast. Yeah, I've got like 100 articles. I've been a columnist for many years. And all my videos are up there for free. I did a bunch of videos with Lee Jones called Poker Simple, which are all these videos are meant to be entertaining. There's there's value, there's content, but there's a lot of humor, a lot of fun stuff. And then if you want to read about my books, they're all there and my coaching program is there. And uh, I only have one um, social media I do, which is Twitter. My handle there is the Tommy Angelo. And I put something up every day that's intended to be a little helpful, just a little line or two. But yeah. If you want to learn more about me, go to TommyAngelo.com. It's all there. I do love that tweet that you mentioned earlier. Your flops are numbered. Love them all. Beautifully stated and well said as we're going into the World Series of Poker. Yeah. Tommy Angelo on Ace 3 Suited, which comes from his fascinating book, Painless Poker. Also the author of the renowned seminal book, Elements of Poker. He's at the Tommy Angelo. He's also at TommyAngelo.com. Thank you so much for blessing us with your lessons on tilt, on gratitude, and of course on poker. Thank you very much, Jennifer. And I love your show. I'm really glad it's going so well. Thank you. Ace three suited, Tommy Angelo. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Grid, sponsored by Poker Stars. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.